I don't know what you may or may not have heard about Pastor Dave's new boss. I just want to assure you, Dave's new boss is a cupcake compared to my old boss. And that's, that's all I'm going to say about it. Just going to leave it at that. Um, he's got it pretty easy. Uh, and with that, it's probably time for us to pray. Let's, let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that for the excitement that we can have leading up to Christmas as things build. As, um, there's joy, and, and, and we also know from earlier this morning that there's at times a great deal of sorrow when we come to Christmas. Um, and whether it is in times of joy or in times of sorrow, there is a king who reigns, who, as we sing, can take the broken things and make them right. And God, we pray that you would take the broken things in our, in our hearts and in our homes, and that you would make them right, and that you would do your work. Show us of your faithfulness. Show us of your promises and how they're true. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Of all the people in the world you could pity, perhaps none is worthier of your pity than those whom you see in the first 30 seconds of any infomercial. I mean, these people, their eggs are adhered to their pan with a chemical bond that requires all their dishes to be thrown away. Their ladders are falling over. Their dishes are falling out of their cupboards. Their whole house is in disarray. It's really sad. And we, I don't know how many infomercials you watch. I used to, when I was a kid, I remember watching an infomercial and being like, wow, this show is all about this same mop. And my parents informed me that this was just a 30-minute long commercial, but I was like, no, but I think we need to buy that. And, uh, and starting at about 10 minutes into any infomercial, there's a, a refrain that starts appearing. But wait, there's more. As if the deal wasn't sweet enough. It's the value of this is going to escalate. Everything's going to get sweeter. The product is somehow going to get better. And with much greater value, with much greater truth and depth of need, the promises of God within the Old Testament have a similar unfolding where there's, there's a promise and you keep reading. And, but wait, there's more. And you keep reading and there's more. And we get to, to Genesis, and, and there's this, the fall. And Adam and Eve are, are kicked out of the garden. They're separated from God. But wait, there's more. That's not, that's not the end of the story. There's going to be a son who's going who's to crush the head of the serpent. And they're like, oh, good. And then all these sons die, and more sons die, and more sons die. And the flood comes. And then the people build a big tower and the Tower of Babel happens. And you think, well, what happened? And then you hear, but wait, there's more. There's a promised blessing. Not just a promised son, but a promised blessing. That all who bless Abraham will be blessed. And through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And we're blessed to be a blessing. As Pastor Dave talked about last week. 
And the Old Testament continues to unfold. And Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac has two sons. And the blessing goes to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And he has 12 sons. And then, through famine, they all get taken from the land that was promised to Abraham and brought to Egypt. And eventually, all their descendants are enslaved. And after that, they're freed. And then they wander through the desert, and they eventually come to the promised land. And about 900 years passes from when Abraham receives that blessing to when all of his descendants are taken to Egypt, freed from Egypt some 400 years later. They go through this period of judges where it seems like, oh, everything's really terrible, and then there's deliverance. And then it somehow gets worse. And then there's deliverance. And then again, it somehow gets worse. And then there's deliverance. And that just repeats all through the book of Judges till Judges ends. And you're thinking, this is supposed to be God's promised people. And they're in God's promised land. But this, this cannot get any worse. And then they get a really good judge named Samuel. And everything seems to be going pretty good. And then the people get this great idea. We want to be like the nations. We want a king. Samuel says, I'm just telling you, that's a bad idea. And the people say, no, we want a king. And God says, give them a king. And so they get the king they're looking for. His face looks great on all the posters. He's got a great slogan, and his name is Saul. And he is just super prideful, and he tries to manipulate God's worship for his gain. And it doesn't go well. And they end up with a really bad king. And God anoints a new king. And this is some 900 years after the last promise to Abraham. And in David, we get this new promise of this new, but wait, there's more. And he's this anointed king. And, he, and the ark is finally back in, in Israel. The Philistines have been whooped. The people are praising God. The king is, has the heart of a worship leader and the sword skills of the dread pirate Roberts. He is the complete package. And now this king, after all that, that Israel has gone through, all their wanderings in the desert, all the, the different types of exile they've experienced, whether it's been in Egypt or in the desert or, or through the invasion of all these foreign countries over the course of Judges, David says it's time, and, and they've just gotten the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines. And that's a big deal. And David said it's time for the days of the Ark of the Covenant being stolen to be gone. I want to build a temple. I have a big house. The Ark of the Covenant has a tent. I want to build a temple. And so he consults with the prophet. This is, this is the Old Testament way of, of praying with a friend. He is consulting the Lord via Nathan. He goes to Nathan and goes, Nathan, I really want to build this temple. Have you ever prayed a prayer? She said, so deeply pure motives to it. That you thought, oh, this is a really good prayer. I worded things right. I quoted scripture in this prayer. I got like my painful face when I said it. You think that's such a good prayer. Like, there's no way God doesn't do anything except exactly what I just prayed. 
because it's so good. Like my heart is so in line with God's right now. I've never walked more closely with him. I've been, I've been doing really good in my devos. Like I fasted for three hours the other day. I didn't have any snacks. I have all this, you know, maybe we think we have a bunch of goodwill built up with God. And we're like, this prayer is really good. This desire on my heart is just super pure. Like it's Brita level pure. Surely God's going to do this. And then God says no. Here's David. He has conquered Goliath. He has faithfully not killed Saul, even though opportunities have presented him, and nobody would have blamed him. Because Saul was God's anointed. And who was David, also as God's anointed, to kill another one of God's anointed. Oh, I won't do that. And here he is. He's brought the ark back. He's worshipped in such a pure heart. The Spirit of God is on him. It's time to build a temple. And he's gone to the prophet. And the prophet has said, you know what, David? That's a good idea. You do what's ever on your heart. And then the prophet went home that night and God told the prophet something else. And what God told the prophet in very short terms was David doesn't get to build the temple. Sometimes God still says no. And God's sovereign plan means that no is not the complete answer. You realize that? That God has a sovereign plan and in His sovereign plan, if He tells you no... It's not the complete answer. There's always more to that no. In case of David, while saying no to David's dream of building this temple, God lovingly makes an eternal promise. And we're going to see that, that God lovingly makes this eternal promise to David, and our, and our points start with he makes it to David. All of this promises to David. And it's, it's really more of like, a, like there's David is the, the chief one, and then the next two are almost like points A and B under, under David. All of this is a promise to David, but it goes beyond David. You know, it, we're, we're starting in verse 8, is, is where we're picking up with the text. But before that, God says this to Nathan. He says, go tell my servant David, I'm reading in verse 5, thus says the Lord, who would build me a house to dwell? And have I not lived in a house since the day I brought the people from Israel of Egypt to this day? But I have been moving about in a tent in my dwelling. In all the places I've moved with all the people of Israel, I did not speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So he's kind of saying, David, where's this coming from? But he's not... He's not condemning David. He goes, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. God starts out in his word to David. Before he says no, he goes, David, remember all I've done. 
God starts with a word of affirmation for all that he's done in the life of David. And David has no problem confessing that God has given him victory over the bear and over the lion, over Goliath, and over every other enemy, over the armies he's conquered. David knew all along that it was God accomplishing these things through him. But God's going to do more. And I just want to suggest to us that as we pray, and, and it doesn't matter what you're praying about. If you're praying for your neighbor who's sick to feel better, if you're praying for someone you love who doesn't know Jesus to know Jesus, if you're praying for a situation at work to improve, if you're praying for your own understanding of God to grow, it is so healthy to start with acknowledging what God has already done in your life. It is so healthy as we get ready to pray, as we approach God, to realize, you know what, God, you saved me. And God, I've seen you answer these prayers over time. God, you, there was this one time where this brother in Christ and I, we had so much conflict that it seemed like there was no way out. And now we dwell in unity together. And God, you did that. God, you've given me joy in the midst of pain. God, you've provided for my needs. And, and we could go through those things. And so God says, and I, I, I've done all this before you, David. Picking up again in verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. In a culture, Middle Eastern culture, honor and shame is everything. And the God of heaven is saying to David, I'm going to honor your name, David, and I'm going to see that everyone around you honors your name. David, I'm going to make you a big deal. And in this culture where honor and shame are of the highest values, God does one of the most loving things for David he can, and he honors his name among the earth. God elevates the name of David. David, I'm going to make your name great. And that's, that's a big deal. And we, it calls to mind for me, the, the, other, the other passage that jumps to mind for me of God making someone's name great is in Philippians. When Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross and God gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, on heaven, on earth, and below the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. God clearly doesn't elevate David's name nearly that high, but he makes his name great. So he promises David, you're going to have a great name. And then in verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them, and they will dwell in their own place. It's easy for us to think like, oh God, you've, you've kind of already done this. And he has. Like they've been in Israel for a while, but the borders of Israel have been anything but secure. You, you think back a few chapters before this into 1 Samuel, and there was a time under Saul's reign where Israel's entire arsenal consisted of two swords. And the Philistines were coming in, and the Philistines... 
had God not intervened, would have completely wiped Israel off the map. They had two swords in their entire arsenal. Your kitchen drawer drawer has more weapons than Israel had at that time. And so the idea of God saying, you're gonna, I'm going to give you a place and it's going to be secure. I'm going to set your boundaries. That's a big deal. And they're seeing it happening, but it's a big deal. But look at the imagery God uses. I'll appoint a place for my people of Israel, so I'm going to give them a land. But then he says, I'm going to plant them. We're going to, as you read the Old Testament, all through the prophets, you have this imagery of Israel being a vineyard who's planted. And, and they, have a, they have a firm fence, but they break it down. And, but God, Israel breaks it down through their sin, but God has set them up as a vineyard with a great fence so that thieves can't come in and so that wild beasts can't come in. Starting in January, we're going to go through Hosea. And I want you to keep the imagery of God planting Israel as a vineyard in your mind. I want, I, I want to invite you to start reading Hosea now. But, but keep this passage in mind that God says to David, I'm planting Israel. I'm planting them. And it, and it also feeds us as we, as we get to the New Testament. And Jesus says words like, I am the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Whatever branch... You are the branches, I am the vine. If you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. That we are in this vineyard. We have been brought in through faith into this vineyard of God to bear fruit. And Israel was planted to bear fruit. David's desire was a temple. We'll see later how a temple could possibly bear fruit. They were to be a protected Vineyard, they were to be safe. God was giving them peace. I'll plant them in their own place. They shall not. They shall be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. Every judge seems to come in because somebody else is ravaging Israel. When we read the story of Gideon, where do we find him? He's stashing wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midians. Because the Midianites were stealing any bit of grain they could and feeding it to their livestock at, at the expense of starving God's people. So we find Gideon and all these other people just hiding and, and being desperate and crying out to God for help and deliverance. And God sending judges to provide that deliverance for a time being when they would repent. God's saying, look, I'm going I'm to establish your kingdom and there's going to be peace how big of a guarantee? Think of being in the position of a king. And you're responsible for the welfare of an entire nation. And God says, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you firm borders. And I'm going to give you peace. And you're not going to be harassed. You're going to have peace and rest. Now we know that David... kept fighting people after this promise. And so, I mean, he had... Where, where was this peace? What was it? I'm going to suggest to you that this peace was the confidence that God had everything in control. 
It'd be a good idea to have a, have a thumb in, in Psalm 89. We're going to go there just once or twice through today. In Psalm 89, which is, which is a psalm about this covenant from God, in verse 20 it says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. David still had enemies after this passage. Sometimes those enemies were within his own house. Sometimes those enemies were other armies. Sometimes those enemies were his own flesh and his own sin. David still had enemies. But God was fighting for him. He wasn't facing his enemies alone. God was his strength. This is not a happily ever after promise. But it is the assurance that God was with him. That his enemies would not prevail over him. And then God says the most ironic thing in this passage because God has just said, David, or he's about to say, David, you're not building me a house. He's already said, David, where did this idea come from? I've never asked for a house. Why do you want to build me a house? And then God says, The Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. The Lord said, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to make your home great. I'm going to establish things between, out of your lineage. It's important for us to know David did not earn any of this. David didn't do a single thing that warranted God saying, Oh, David, wow, you killed that giant. I really owe you one. I never could have done that without your pebble and sling. Oh, David, you, you brought the ark back. Wow, I don't know how I can ever repay you. I never could have done that. Except that God did do that. He did it during Saul's reign. They took the ark. They put it in their temple. Their, their statue of their God kept falling over face forward in front of it. And they just put it on an ox cart and said, just let it go wherever it goes. And God guided the ox back to Israel. God can do all this without us. No, God doesn't do this because he owes David one. Oh, David, I really owe you a solid. I'll just make you king. How's that sound? No, God does it because God is loving and kind and gracious. And all of these promises that we've already read, all the ones we're about to read, flow from the love and grace and kindness that is in God. And there's this irony here because David wants to build a temple to magnify God and to, to, to show God's reigning power within Israel. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And through your house, I'm going to magnify myself. And so the the promise shifts. This is still a promise to David, but it shifts from David to his offspring, to his son. <clears throat> this is a, these are the words you want to hear while someone's making you a promise. And when your days are fulfilled, David, when you die, like, wait a second, God. 
When you die, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So God has now said, David, I'm not just promising things to you, I'm promising things to your son. That I'm going to establish his kingdom going forward. God is promising David that his legacy is going to extend beyond his years. David, when you're dead, I'm still going to be working. David doesn't just have peace from his enemies. He has peace that one of his kids is going to reign in the same way that he has. He has peace that his people are going to be established. That God will establish the kingdom of his son under his son's reign. And then verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David had a dream to build a temple. It is a really good dream. It was a noble dream to build that temple. David's desire was to see that temple built for the people of God to praise God in a temple instead of in a tent. This is a good dream. And God gives that dream to Solomon. God says, David... You're not going to do it. Your son is going to do that. And your dreams, no matter how personal they are, no matter how sincere they are, no, how, no matter how proper those dreams may be and honorable, they belong to God. And God, in His sovereign will and in His reign, has the authority and the ability to say no. And they are God's dreams to give to someone else. If He so chooses. He can affirm, He can deny, He can give those dreams to someone else. He is God. Now David could have taken a really dark path here. Had David been like his predecessor, perhaps... He would have killed his kids. Perhaps he would have let his kids live, but he would have forced the construction of the temple himself. And it would not have gone well. He would have disobediently and forcibly done his own thing instead of obeying the Lord. Instead, what he does, he said, I may not be able to build it, but I can do everything I can to help my son build it. So he wrote out the plans for the temple for Solomon and his servants to follow. He set them up for success. And when you read the dedication of the temple, when you read about the work that happened and what God did, how how the glory of God came down so they couldn't even see because the, the fog of God's glory was so thick. And you read Solomon's prayer that all the nations would know there is a God in Israel. 
That, that God, you see, you see it coming together, that God has planted his people as a vineyard. And everyone around looks at that vineyard and go, whoa, those are great grapes. The owner of that vineyard must be great. That the temple would point the nations to God's glory. And under the reign of Solomon, we see that happening. And God makes other promises concerning Solomon. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. God had a deep love for Solomon. You remember when Solomon became king and God said, Solomon, what do you need? I'm going to give it to you. took a fatherly approach and he gave Solomon the wisdom. He gave him everything else. And Solomon sinned and God confronted him. But because of his promise to David, the consequences weren't fully realized till Rehoboam became king after Solomon. Because God kept his word. In Psalm 89, 27 and 29, it says, I will make him firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand before him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. And as we read this, it's easy to look back and say, well, yeah, that, that's talking about Solomon. But it's also easy to look forward and say, well, this is talking about someone greater than Solomon. And our greatest Old Testament figures, even some of our not great Old Testament figures, all seem to point to someone better. Remember Jesus saying, and someone wiser than Solomon has come. That God's steadfast love would be on him. But I wonder about David. And he hears this. And he hears a first part of a promise that's directed at him. And then God starts the next part of the promise. And when you die, these things are going to happen. Your son's going to build a temple. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. My love will be on him. I'll establish his kingdom. I wonder how that impacted David's relationship with Solomon and his other kids. I wonder if that changed how David talked to them, what he told them. And I want you to know, I mean, none of us in here are David. Don't, don't, take, don't take away from this of saying, oh, what's God's covenant with me going to be? How's, how's God going to establish my kingdom? Don't take that away from this. This is God's word to David. But God's plan with David didn't end when David died. And maybe there are things in your life that God wants you to do that will have long-lasting implications even after you die. And I think the easiest way to seek that out is through discipleship. You think about this. Had the disciples decided they weren't going to follow the Great Commission, Christianity would have ended. And at any generation, if any generation decides we're not going to pass on disciples, we're not going to make disciples who will make disciples, it's all going to end. 
And so I encourage you in this. There, there are long-lasting implications for your life, even after you die. And they may be found within discipleship and within your just daily ministry with those closest to you. So seek out other generations. Seek out other people. Take advantage of brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that, that grows them closer to God, in a way that grows you closer to God. And we finally see that this promise doesn't just go to David. It extends to his son, and the promise of David extends to the people of God. And your house, David, verse 16, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. If this is true, it means the throne of David still exists. And if there's a throne, then surely there's someone sitting on that throne. And this is where the promise to Eve and the promise to Abraham, and now the promise of David says, but wait, there's more. There's so much more. Because for the people, they would have heard this and thought, oh, if the kingdom of David goes on forever, then peace is always available. And, And walking with God is always available. And the security that we have is always available. For us, we see there's one coming. There's there's one coming that this throne is going to be eternal, so there must be an eternal one who's going to sit on it. And we look back at what he says, and when he commits iniquity, speaking of the Son, I'll discipline him. And how are you going to discipline him, God? Well, God's going to discipline him with the rods of men and the stripes of sons. Go back to Psalm 89. Verse 30, if, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, if they do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. The psalmist gives us a commentary to this. Because in the promise, it's, it's I'm going to punish your son, David, with these I'm going to punish iniquity. I'm going to put that on your son with the rod and the stripes. And here it's I'm going to punish the people with the rods and the stripes. And then we go, and maybe you're anticipating this, to Isaiah 53. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Oh, sorry, I started too late. Verse 5. But he was wounded. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's going to be a king. And it's, he's going to sit on David's throne forever. He's going to be established forever. And the iniquity of the people is going to cause stripes to be laid on him. And those stripes will bring us healing. And we will be God's people planted in his land to bring fruit. To the glory of God. 
I think the people benefited a great deal from having David and Solomon as their king. There was military victory. There was security. There was peace. There was prosperity. The kingdom just blossomed under David and under Solomon. But that peace wasn't complete. There were still battles being waged even though God was giving victory. There was still turmoil within the house of the king. People had to work really hard to build Solomon's temple. So I want to suggest that as much as the people benefited, and they did, from having David and Solomon as their king, we benefit even more from having Jesus as our king because through Jesus as our king, we can have a peace that transcends understanding. We can have the peace of God given to us, the security of knowing that we've been adopted as children of God through faith in Christ. The prosperity of knowing that, that Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. Of knowing that God's provision is greater than the world's excess. Because our king is, is not David. Our king is the one who came from David's line who sits on the throne today. Who prays on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the promise builds. We thank you that you are so good that your son would reign, that your son is our king, that he is our savior that our iniquity can be placed on Him, and that the peace that He gives is sure and complete. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.